0: Welcome to 360 North. I'm your host, Frank Tacey Burns, and if I sound a little funny this week, well, that's because I'm actually recording this in my home office. JP decided to close the studio down. He thought he needed some cottage time, but nonetheless, I want to bring you this next episode where I took the show on the road, or rather over the bridge, to the Canadian Museum of History to talk to Miss Karen Ryan karen is a curator at the museum and she helped put together an exhibit on the franklin expedition our conversation lasted a lot longer than i was expecting we talked for just over two hours and instead of bringing you that in one big chunk i decided to make it into a two-part episode so in this first part we kind of get to know the franklin expedition a little bit we learn what the mentality was in britain uh, we get to know some of the main characters and we also get to know what life was like on the ship and in the second part well people die. Um, But before we get to that, one final note on the sound in this episode. I had forgotten there were speakers throughout the exhibit, and I've tried keeping that background noise to a minimum. But at the very least, it'll help you imagine like you were there in the whistling wind and the blowing snow. So without further ado, here's my chat with Karen.
1: My name is Karen Ryan, and I'm the Northern Canada Curator at the Canadian Museum of History. I actually am an archaeologist, and so I work in the north on archaeology sites, usually Indigenous sites, so Inuit and pre-Inuit. But working in the North, working in the the High Arctic in particular, you often see traces of the Franklin expedition and the searches for Franklin. And so I didn't really learn about Franklin in school. I don't know if that's because I'm from Newfoundland. A lot of people say they have heard about Franklin, but I learned about it more as as an archaeologist moving around in the landscape and seeing these, these stone cairns and other signs of Europeans in the area. And when I I came to the the museum, we're always brainstorming for ideas about what exhibitions we will do. And I said, you know, we've never actually done an exhibition on the Franklin Expedition, which is astounding in some respects, because he is actually a big deal to Canada, whether Canadians
0: actually realize that or not. I definitely want to get into that, the importance of of the expedition and kind of bringing it to the museum. But before getting into that, maybe just give me a summary of what the expedition was like.
1: Um, well, the Europeans have been looking for a Northwest Passage for about 400 years before Franklin left London in 1845, and that's something I think we try. We try to impress to visitors that it wasn't just Franklin, starting off as the first European to go into the Arctic. Um, so he went. He left London in May of 1845, and really, they left london thinking how could we fail so much had already become known to europeans there was only 900 miles left to to really chart for them they they had two points they just needed to connect those two points and what they didn't know is that the area in between those two points uh, involved some of the worst ice conditions in the arctic mm. so when Erebus and terror sailed into that area of the arctic they entered uh Scientists call it an ice sink or an ice trap. It's an area that's still incredibly difficult for ships to navigate in today. And they got stuck in an area where Inuit hadn't lived for a long time because the ice was so severe that it was impossible for them to really make a living there. And they were stuck for 19 months before the ships uh, finally, a decision was made to desert them and try
0: to walk out of the Arctic. What kind of work has to go into building an exhibit like this?
1: It's a lot of work. If you want to tell the story properly, which we did, you really need to involve all the people that can help you tell the story in the way that it needs to be told. And so we initially met um, with Parks Canada before Erebus was found in 2014. And then they went off and of course, two months later they found Erebus, which was fantastic because we really hadn't done a lot at that point with the exhibition. So it was a great thing of, of, okay, they found the ships, what artifacts potentially will they pull off of Mm -hmm. the ship that we can use in the exhibition? And in the meantime, Um, One of the other things I really wanted to do was include a lot of the really famous Franklin artifacts that people, if you know the story, you would recognize from TV documentaries and books and different things. So that meant reaching out to the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, just outside of London. And then we also wanted to work with Inuit Heritage Trust because obviously the Inuit contribution to the Franklin story is amazingly important. Uh, It started in the 19th century when Franklin searchers began to realize that the Inuit had incredibly important knowledge.
0: All right. I think we're good for a water if you're good right. to do so
1: so the first object that visitors see when they come into the exhibition is the fragment of the ship's wheel which was discovered uh, about thirty meters from Erebus in 2016 by the Parks Canada divers it's the first time this uh, artifact has ever been displayed publicly because it was uh, just finished conservation a couple of weeks before the exhibition opened so it was a little bit stressful for us but luckily Flora Davidson who is the Parks Canada conservator did a fabulous job and we Mm -hmm. have this really substantial section maybe about a a quarter of the wheel that's on display so visitors can really get a sense of just how big the ship's wheels were on these these vessels
0: there are two things that come to mind you mentioned the size i mean this is like what maybe about two feet long ish
1: yeah the the fragment that's left yeah yeah yeah. and And so if
0: you say that's a quarter like that, that really does give you kind of a, an idea of the size of how big it is the second thing is like i would never know this would be a ship's wheel it looks like bone almost to me by now so <laughs> I mean, as an archaeologist how can you tell if something is i guess how could you tell that this was actually a wheel
1: well um when, there's only so many things really realistically it could be so you can tell that it's wood if you look up close you can see the, the grain of the wood is still there even though it's pretty eroded now by the salt water and salt water does pretty terrible things to wood, which is why a lot of the artifacts were in conservation for so long. It's not a matter of just taking them out of the water and drying them out, it's it's making sure they don't warp and become more damaged. Um, and so, um, with the wheel, it's just a really cool example of, of, you know, Franklin stood here and handled this wheel, and other officers stood here in the directions when they said turn south down Peel Sound and, and into the area where the ships were eventually caught by the ice. This was the wheel that spun the ship that sealed their fate.
0: So if we were to keep going? The,
1: the first section of the exhibition really introduces the Inuit. And so we have a, an oral history listening station at the beginning of the exhibition, which was uh, an interview we were really lucky to have done with Louis Kamikak in 2016. Okay. He, he died recently. But he was uh, a really incredible historian who had a lifelong interest in the Franklin expedition. And he accumulated all of these Inuit oral histories about, uh, about Franklin and about the expedition and what, Inuit saw at the time and what they remember and and wrote it down because that's that's really uh, giving you more information and it's really it's it's confirming the archaeology and the archaeology is confirming the oral history so it's we wanted visitors to come into the exhibition to get that and then so I, I suspect that some visitors when they come into a Franklin expedition exhibition they see the wheel they're like yep that's that's Franklin <laughs> and then they turn and they see an Inuit kayak that's you know, 22 feet long. They see uh, Inuit seal skin clothing on two mannequins. They see Inuit tools, bows and knives and different things. We introduced the fact that one of the earliest explorers to look for Franklin, Charles Francis Hull, who was an American explorer who got the Franklin bug, um, was dropped off in, on Baffin Island. But he met two Inuit uh, who spoke English, and they really became his friends and his guides for the rest of his forays into the Arctic.
0: Now what year would this be?
1: 1860 was when he first met them.
0: And so, okay. That- that's kind of surprising to hear that Inuit would be speaking English.
1: Well, Inuit had been in contact, especially on the east coast of Baffin Island with whalers for a long time at that okay. point because there were a lot of different whalers going into the area after bowhead whales. Yeah. And there were um, trapping, trapping for foxes, and uh, uh, traders were starting to go into the area as well. So. Some, not all Inuit obviously Mm -hmm. spoke uh, English, but people that had been in contact, people that had the ability to learn another language, uh, they certainly saw some advantages to working with Europeans because it was an easy way for them to get some of those Uh, European materials that they really desired, like metal. Okay. And so uh, another display case close to the mannequins shows traditional Inuit tools alongside uh, Inuit tools, which have incorporated European materials from the Franklin Expedition. And this is kind of the trail of breadcrumbs that the first Europeans to find signs of Franklin would have found. They're they're traveling along the Boothia Peninsula, which is the mainland just to the east of King William Island. They've been told, uh, previous explorers have been told by the Inuit that something happened to a group of white men in that area. So the assumption was that this was Franklin's expedition, and so people went back to the area to look for Franklin, and they meet Inuit along the Boothia Peninsula, who very clearly have European materials, which could only have come from the Franklin expedition. So instead of saying all of this in some really long text that nobody would read or understand, we decided we would (laughs) display them, so that it's really obvious to you that this is what we mean, or this is what the, the explorers would have seen. The searchers—it sets you into the, the, the mood of people who are looking for Franklin and what they're seeing, and the traces as they're trying to understand what happened to the two ships and the men on them.
0: Now, you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the the sealskin parkas and the kayak—are um, these? Replicas are these original pieces. These like, are original. Okay. So the
1: parkas are about a hundred years old.
0: Okay,
1: um, they're from Cumberland Sound. So the uh, Ipervik, who was the Inuit man with Charles Francis Hall, and. Um, Takalituk, Ta- who is the woman, um, would have worn something very similar to this. So this is a Cumberland Sound style of summer clothing. And so... W- yeah, <laughs> summer
0: clothing. <laughs>
1: because it's not as warm and waterproof course, as terrible yeah. clothing. <laughs> and giving people an idea of, this is what Inuit in the area were required to wear in the summer. Mm-hmm. Still relatively heavy clothing mm-hmm. because it's still the Arctic. And then, you know, in, in your own mind as a visitor, you can start to think about you know we're all canadian we understand sometimes what a cold wet day is when you're underdressed and if you're a franklin sailor in wool that gets damp and then the wind blows just how ill-suited that clothing was for for the arctic and for the exploration and just how miserable those poor men would have been
0: you mentioned that wasn't the first expedition like did people just not realize it or just refuse to kind of didn't have the materials to dress better. Like what? what?
1: Well, they they didn't have the materials yeah. in that respect. I mean, they didn't have Gore-Tex and they didn't have you know <laughs> all the things that we take today. So they they were equipped with what they could. So they, mm-hmm. each of the men when they crossed the Arctic Circle were given by the Admiralty, which is a big deal because the Admiralty was pretty cheap with its sailors, a suit of warm clothing, which probably was. You know, a pair of essentially long johns and an undershirt, which we would today think, wow, that's really not going to help keep you warm. But lots of different clothing, overcoats were provided and Welsh wigs, were, which were these kind of knitted wigs that had curly curly patterns on the end that looked like hair. <laughs> okay. So they, they did the best they could. Yeah. But I, again, when you think, you know, they were equipped with leather shoes, with leather soles and how cold that would be when you're and slippery when you're walking on ice and snow, it's, it's sad. I, I, don't, I don't think they were stupid. I think that's certainly something that is been in the, the Franklin expedition has been accused of being.
0: Okay.
1: I think that they just they were given a task, they were told to sail two ships through the Arctic and they were given very advanced technologies for the time mm-hmm. but the Still. ice got them in the end.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh that's fair.
1: And so then we come into the, the second area of the exhibition and what we do is sort of set the stage for the Franklin expedition. So we want people to think of themselves being back in London and actually planning to send Franklin into the Arctic. And so we have um, a nice uh, Wall map, AV wall map, which gives you a sense of the history of Europeans sailing into the, and going by foot into the Arctic for the Northwest Passage. It starts with John Cabot in 1497, and it brings you up to 1843, which was the last European expedition before Franklin sailed. And you get a sense just of how long Europeans were looking mm-hmm. for the Northwest Passage. It was almost an obsession to find at a certain point. They had only 900 miles left to do like they were never lost they knew exactly where they were they were just trapped
0: the natural question that comes to mind now is how long had they known that there was actually a northwest passage if it had never been discovered.
1: Well they they assumed and hoped there was a Northwest okay. Passage. So there was a fun map I looked at at Library and Archives Canada when we were doing the developing the content and figuring out what we would actually use in the exhibition and it was a French map and with typical kind of French disdain for the English of the period there was an arrow that pointed to the north for, uh, towards the Yukon area today and it said the English think there's a Northwest Passage there <laughs> and you know, it was hope. Nobody knew for certain there was a passage, but they there was an assumption that everything was equal, and so that if you could get around the South Pole, you should be able to get around the North Pole. And there were tides and different things which were indications that there was water flowing through the area. Okay. And therefore, there should be a should be a channel. The Napoleonic Wars had just ended, mm-hmm. and so Britain had the largest navy in the world, and suddenly they had no no wars to fight. And what so, else what else are you going <laughs> to <laughs> do? So hey, let's let's reequip two ships and let's send them to. for the northwest passage
0: so why would it be so important for them to actually find it like was it Mm -hmm. was it hoped to be a shipping route was it hoped to be is it just pure discovery
1: Initially, they hoped it would be a shipping route. Okay. And initially, this is the 15th, 16th century. Okay. At a certain point in time, people aren't stupid. They realize if you're spending all this time trying to find something and you can't find it, it's not going to be something you can use commercially. So at a certain point, it becomes national pride that, you know, the sun doesn't set on the British Empire in the in this period. And and we're also getting into the period just before Darwin. So the idea of science and discovery and documenting the British Empire was, was another thing.
0: So behind us here, we have three three pretty big um, images of who I'm guessing are men who were among or on the ship.
1: Mm -hmm. So in the centre we have a picture of Sir John Franklin. So we're getting into the period of early photographs. And so just before the expedition sailed, the officers of the Erebus were photographed as well as Captain Crozier, who's the gentleman on the left, who was the captain of the Terror. And Crozier is actually a really, really interesting fellow because he had a a lot of Arctic experience. This was his fourth trip into the Northwest Passage. He had seen uh, an earlier Royal Navy vessel that had been sent looking for the Northwest Passage actually get pushed onto the land and sunk in by oh, well. ice, So he knew what he was getting into and he was very well respected. And so when you look at the, the portrait of Franklin, um, you can see that you know he's 59 years old at this point. He looks, you know, he could have skipped a meal or two and, and been okay. <laughs> and he apparently had a very bad cold.
0: And so was this Franklin's first expedition into the arctic or had he gone before
1: this was his first expedition when he was in command of a ship okay so is it was his third expedition to the northwest passage he um, the first two were land-based so he walked uh, okay. over land with canoes uh, the first one didn't end terribly well there were 21 people and 11 of them died okay and so there's accusations of murder and cannibalism on that expedition um, so he wanted to redeem himself so he went back again in 1825, and he made incredible discoveries on this expedition because he learned from his mistakes, and uh, a large part of the Canadian mainland, the Western Canadian mainland and the Northwest Territories, uh, was mapped because of Franklin. Mm-hmm. So Franklin was really seeking to find where Franklin had been 20 years earlier when he left in
0: 1845. Now on the right, there's Commander Fitzjames, mm-hmm. who was, what was his role on the ship?
1: He was. The second-in-command on the Airbus, third-in-command overall, he had never been to the Arctic. he's a bit of a mystery man there's some question about his parentage and, and other scandalous Victorian okay. <laughs> things um, we have several quotes of his in the uh, exhibition because he had written a journal not a letter because he had to turn those over and so we have some really great insights into his character his sense of humor and he also describes a lot of the officers on board his ship so you get a sense of who they are and Crozier I, I feel very bad for Crozier and Fitz James because of course all of the decisions fell to them and they had to keep a yeah. brave face when all of the men they knew that they were in a very bad situation Franklin died one can argue that he died warm in his bed we don't know that for sure but he certainly probably did not die in a way that some of the other people on the expedition did and it fell to Crozier who then became the commander of the expedition and FitzJames his second to decide should they abandon the ships when would they do that and what would they do
0: now Based on the fictitious show Terror, which mm-hmm. has recently come out, there was um, I guess Crozier and FitzJames would often butt heads. Is there any proof that that was the case or was it kind of more friendly than that? Um,
1: there, there's some suggestions that initially perhaps there might have been some tension. I think Crozier was very well ex- experienced and he might not have. Understood why Fitz James was uh, assigned to the expedition. Fitzjames James uh, picked most of the crew, which was something normally that Crozier's position should have done. Okay. So whether that was just one incident and they otherwise got along fine?
0: Fair enough. I'll keep going.
1: Yeah. Um, decisions we made about layout and design in the exhibition. Uh, we wanted to make one area that we're coming into now uh, larger so we had to shrink the area where the, the kind of setting sail, the preparations for the exhibition. So we have okay. a, an AV here which is said, letting you know they've left London, they've gone to Stromness and Orkney. Uh, there's, there was an, an issue, Fitz James probably felt as an, uh, a nice, maybe less experienced person than Crozier, let some of his men go see their families in Kirkwall and Orkney and then 3 o'clock in the morning they had to go retrieve them because they were drunk and hadn't come back to the ship. (laughs) So then when they finally came back to the ship, they had to pull everybody out of their berths, search the ship for alcohol, and dump the alcohol over the side. But we made the decision to make that area just a little bit briefer and smaller because what we really wanted to do in this, the next area was give you a sense of what life was like on the ships. Mm -hmm. And so the ship plans for Erebus and Terror are in the archives at the National Maritime Museum. And what we did is we took the, um, the plan for the lower deck where the men would have been sleeping and working and we reconstructed part of that full scale in the exhibition mm-hmm. to give you a sense of just how small those ships are. And this, this idea started to come together um, before the ships were found because people kept saying to Parks Canada, why haven't you found the ships? You know, they're small ships, they're, they're 105 feet long. And so just to give an idea of what life might have been like on board the ship for those 62 and 67 men that were living on them. We took the, the lower deck, so the part that shows the captain's cabin up to about the midway point of the ship and we put it on the floor as a floor plan so this is actually really fun to see visitors come into because it's not something that most people would expect and it gives you a sense of just what space was like on mm-hmm. these ships so you see that the the officers on both ships would have had private cabins but those cabins are really small you know when you think about living in, in a place for three years you've got a bed you've got a writing table and you've got a washstand and you don't really have much more space than mm-hmm. that. And so just imagine the ship is you know, pitching in the waves and you're, you're trying to get dressed and you're trying not to fall out of your cabin into the passageway. It's, it gives you a sense of just the, the, the interpersonal skills had to be worked out long before you really got stuck in the ice or things <laughs> were going to go bad. But also um, in the captain's cabin, which is one of the biggest areas on the ship, where all of the decisions would have been made. We tried to get a sense of what that space would have looked like and and worked on for people. And and here you see another one of the Erebus artifacts is a little preview of what's to come in the underwater area. This is a furniture leg. From Franklin's cabin on the Erebus, and it's got short legs and it would have been relatively big. So we have it in a case and Franklin would have been sitting in his cabin, he could have knocked his knee on that table. Just just these really fun things to bring you into the fact that it's a real story. You mentioned the AMC terror show. It's it's fiction, but it's based on historic mm-hmm. events. But sometimes in Canada we tend to lose sight of Franklin is a real person, and those 128 other people is real people, and we really wanted in the exhibition to remind you that they're they're real, that they suffered, that they died horribly in some cases, that they had friends and family, and opinions and jokes. They're real.
0: When I did the first walkthrough, the the layout is really interesting. I mean, the other thing is that on the post there in the middle is that the ceiling of that's the the height
1: of the deck okay so that's the height but then you have to remember that there are beams going across the deck at the same time so sometimes the height of this you'd be in trouble yeah yeah. you'd have to remember (laughs) take two steps duck take two steps duck Uh, it's it's a very low space it would have been pretty dark it would have been very warm a lot of people think that it would have been quite cold but it actually probably would have been very stuffy and overheated and then when you go on deck it's the reverse of how dry and cold the Arctic naturally mm. is in the winter and when you're in the sea ice. So it's just putting yourself in the in the place of those men and, and trying to envision what would you do and, and what were they doing. Mm. And so this then, you, as you proceed towards the bow, we only had a limited amount of space. We couldn't do the entire vessel because we, had, we only had a gallery that was so big and they wouldn't let us knock out the wall, uh. disappointingly enough, and go <laughs> into the next gallery. Uh, and so then you kind of change into areas where what were they actually doing well we don't know because obviously nobody survived but we can guess what they were doing based on what other expeditions in the period did so we have some uh, wall sized paintings blow-up paintings so you have people that are writing and people that are playing different instruments and listening to people give the Sunday sermon which is sort of my favorite of them because they're listening with varying degrees of attention And there's a monkey. The Franklin Expedition brought a monkey with them on board their ship. So they're not meant to show you what the expedition definitely did, but it's certainly giving you an idea of what they probably did. We know from one of the lieutenants that they were going to have a school on board the ship in the winter. okay? Because a lot of the the ordinary sailors wouldn't have really known how to read and write. So that was one of the tasks for the officers was uh, to take the slates and pencils that they brought with them and teach them how to just do basic things that we consider everybody to know today, but was, you know, still pretty uncommon for their era.
0: Why would you bring a monkey?
1: I Maybe. Lady Franklin bought the monkey. She thought it would be a good idea. <laughs> um, I feel bad for the poor monkey. It's Jacko. Jacko didn't end very well in the AMC series. We don't know how, how she ended on the show either, but... It seemed like most of the officers at least liked her. Uh, One of the letters talks about how they knew uh, it it was getting cold because one day Jacko came up on the upper deck in a a, a set of trousers and a coat that one of the sailors had made for her. So she was was probably amusing and liked to a degree. So there's another quote that talks about how she steals food off of the officers' plates and they like her so much that they just blame the officer for not protecting their food. So it's... (laughs) they had they had a dog too so they they did bring animals on board with them
0: wow okay and then so as right near the paintings essentially on the same wall there's seaman's chest Mm -hmm. is that all the space that that's all the space
1: so they would share this so each person had one half they'd lift it up i think it's about three cubic feet in total um it it seems like a really tiny amount of space considering how much you and I probably packed to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But considering the period that a lot of people didn't have 15 changes of clothing, they probably had two or three, um, so they could probably comfortably fit everything they needed in that that little space. They were given the, more, the, the warmer clothing by the Royal Navy as they progressed further north, so that was probably... Uh, stored somewhere else and then as their clothing that they brought with them wore out they just would buy more from the slop's chest so either finished garments or okay. lengths of, of clothing that they would then make into shirts and pants themselves but it's 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 a tight amount of space, yeah. I wouldn't want to bring that I, I'd want an extra bag
0: When So during the expedition, was there any this is a dumb question but I'm going to say it anyways there were letters I figure that were sent back and forth, mm-hmm. well one how did they get there, but Like, was there, other than the letters, was there any other kind of contact between Franklin, the ships, and home?
1: So the letters, I keep mentioning these letters in quotes, they were writing letters as they were sailing. As soon as they left London, they started writing letters. And their last point of contact with Europeans would have been at the Whalefish Islands, which is on the west coast of, of Greenland. Uh, because the Erebus and Terror were brought to that area with two other ships. Okay. So, and one of those ships carried the rest of their supplies because they didn't want to be overloaded when they were crossing the Atlantic. So they spent five or six days at the Whalefish Islands and they were offloading their supplies from those vessels onto Erebus and Terror. And that's when those last letters were sewn into Bags and sent back to London. Okay, Uh, they probably continued to send or to write letters, but of course they they wouldn't have been able to send them. Mm -hmm. They might have sent them when they got to Hong Kong, because once they got to Hong Kong, they still had to sail all the way back to England. So those letters might have gotten to London to the fans, the friends and family before then, but they were probably keeping journals, officers were required to keep journals, and with the assumption that they would give to these to the appropriate people when they got back home.
0: So there's, I mean, there's quite a few items in this section here, can you talk about your favorites?
1: One of my favorites, because it's unexpected for people, so we have the slate and the slate pencil which they would have been using to help with the ordinary sailors learn how to read and write, but we also have two playbills from mm-hmm. uh, from a Franklin search expedition in the 1850s, and these were made on board both ships, they, were, they had printers, so they, they made these uh, flyers essentially to advertise the fact that they were putting it on plays. And One of the things the Royal Navy had realized really early on was that if you have a bunch of men in really crowded conditions for a long period in the dark and in the cold, you have to keep them occupied because otherwise you're going to have some problems. So they would put on place. So we actually have just over here um, a painting from from the Erebus in 1836-1837, the Erebus of Franklin. She was on an earlier Northwest Passage expedition, and so this painting shows a pantomime, so it's called Arctic Amusements. It's by Owen Stanley, who was an officer with George Back on that expedition, and it shows all of the men in costume. You've got various sailors in women's clothing, uh, somebody in a wolf or a dog's costume, somebody in Elizabethan kind of finery and they would have been putting on these plays and the officers would have been the people to act in them. And it was really looked forward to by everybody, especially the the ordinary able seamen because this was one of the only times they could really laugh at and make fun of their officers. Mm-hmm. So I could look at you and you're ah, doing whatever and I could laugh at you and enjoy myself and everybody was much more relaxed. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really great opportunity for for the men. They would do this in secret. They would, you know, in the, on these really confined ships, they would be painting scenery and building sets and getting costumes and practicing their lines and trying to keep it secret from anybody who wasn't involved in that play. It was a pretty regular occurrence because it was fun. And then from there we bring you up to from the inside of the ship. And we have a picture or a drawing of Neptune, the Newfoundland Uh, dog. I'm a dog person, so I really worked hard to make sure we could have Neptune in the exhibition. (laughs) Uh, And you can just imagine this unwieldy Newfoundland dog running around the Erebus, probably chasing the monkey and the monkey throwing stuff at the dog. (laughs) But uh, a really well-loved animal by all accounts.
0: That, dear listener, is where I leave you with the image of these officers putting on a funny play for the rest of the sailors while Jacko and Neptune are running around on deck. Life seems pretty good, right? The Franklin Expedition is by no means unknown. You've heard us mention a TV show, there's also been books and songs written about it, it's even featured in a pretty prominent video game which we get into a little bit in part two of our conversation. Before we got to recording, Karen mentioned striking a balance between presenting the information to those who have never heard of this versus not boring to death those who are familiar with it. That's kind of the same balance that I'm trying to strike here with these two episodes. So if this is totally new to you, or if you've learned something new or different than what you were expecting, I'd love for you to get in touch. To do that, you can send me an email or go through social media. Links to all of that are going to be in the show notes. And in the past couple episodes, you've heard me mention this website that I want to build with more links and resources that we reference on the show or that we come across in prepping this show. And if you feel like you can chip in, unfortunately doing this is not free. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash three H R n music for 360 North was written by Simon Leger, and the sound is kind of courtesy of JPM pop-up podcasting. He did provide the microphones. Check back soon for part two of my conversation with Karen where shit hits the fan. All right, thanks for listening.